Good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Brendan, and I am a pastoral intern here at King of Grace. And it is my uh, privilege to bring God's word to you today. Uh, apologize, I do have a little bit of a cold, so if I cough or sneeze, no need to panic. It is uh, <laughs> not COVID, so we're all good there. Um, so uh, just to start off, um, as an adult, uh, one thing I have to do on a pretty regular basis is go grocery shopping. And before I was married, when I would go uh, grocery shopping, um, I pretty much exclusively bought off-brand, generic brand things. So if I wanted Pop-Tarts, why not try Tasty Tarts? If I wanted honey bunches of oats, I could get honey crunchy oats. And if someone wanted Dr. Pepper, I could introduce them to a number of other physicians like Dr. Thunder, Dr. Pop, Dr. Perky, so many options. <laughs> and to me, they all tasted the same and uh, they felt good in my wallet because they were cheaper. Now, since getting married, I have found that my cart has inevitably filled up with more name brand goods <laughs> than I would get for myself. And uh, over you know, the five years of being married, I've tried to convince my wife, you know, let's just get the, the off brands for certain things. Like we don't need Cheerios, we can get Tastios, we can do all these things. And she insists that she can taste the difference. So like any good husband where reason failed, trickery ensued. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, uh, both of us had a craving for Coca-Cola. So I decided, you know what, I'll go across the street to the Cumberland Farms, and I will pick up a nice two-liter bottle of Cumberland Farms Cola. So I come back, uh, she's in the uh, other room, so I'm in the kitchen, and uh, I pour her a glass. And I bring it to her like, here you go, sweetie, here's your Coke. And uh, she takes a sip of it and looks at me really skeptically and says, this isn't Coca-Cola, is it? You went, you went with the off-brand, didn't you? How? <laughs> How does she know? <laughs> and so I asked her, and she said, you know, there's just a difference in taste. You can really tell. And somehow, uh, a, a gift I do not have, she can taste very subtle, nuanced differences that make a huge impact for her on knowing what it is she's drinking. She's able to tell Coca-Cola from regular cola. And so with that, uh, I want to uh, talk about this passage in Romans today. We're going to be looking at Romans 3, 21 through 26. And this is one of the most crucial passages of Scripture for understanding God's Word. But just like uh, discerning the uh, differences and the nuances and the subtleties of an off-brand versus a name-brand, uh, today I really do want to dive in into some of the complexities, some of the technicalities, some of the nuances of this passage of Scripture. Uh, not for the purpose of being over-technical, but for the purpose of helping us truly understand what the gospel is. It is so crucial and important that I think we uh, need to know exactly what God's word is saying, even if we're diving into the deep end of things. 
And so uh, just as uh, we turn to Romans 3, 21 through 26, just want to pray for us that our hearts would be open and uh, that God would speak to us through his word. So Lord, I thank you for uh, just your blessing, God, of your word. I thank you for, Lord, the gift of salvation. And I pray that uh, as a result of, of hearing your word today, Lord, uh, that we would understand more clearly, that we would worship more gratefully, Lord, and that we would cherish more firmly the gospel of your salvation. And so I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So again, Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's word from Romans. So uh, we are in our series in Romans, and just with Advent, um, just a glorious season, uh, it's been a little over a month since we've been in Romans. So I think it's helpful to uh, just kind of recap where we were before. So yeah, about a month ago, we went through Romans 3, the first uh, 20 verses. And in those 20 verses, Paul lays out the devastating truth that all human beings are sinful and are under the judgment of God, that no one is good, not even one, whether you're a Jew under God's covenant or you are a Gentile outside of that. Everyone is universally under the judgment of God. So this is very, very bad news. But now here in verse 21 and moving forward, Paul is going to pivot from that necessary bad news of universal sinfulness to the great and glorious news of God's rescue plan in salvation through Christ. So right off the bat, he starts with this phrase, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And in our time in Romans, we've seen this uh, little uh, phrase, the righteousness of God. And so for these first couple of verses, I want to dig into that to explain Firstly, what is the gospel? What is meant by this phrase, righteousness of God, and what follows? And so in order to do that, we do need to get a little technical and uh, talk about grammar. And firstly, I want to talk about English grammar. So uh, sorry if this is bringing back flashbacks of elementary school or anything like that, <laughs> but I assure you it is, it is useful. So we have this phrase in English, the righteousness of God. And uh, you see in English, we have uh, what you call the possessive case. So I can say, you know, this is Brendan's phone. You just put an apostrophe S after it. It means that I own it. It belongs to me. Or 
if you want to sound a little old-fashioned, you could say, oh, this is the phone of Brendan, essentially means the same thing. It really just indicates possession. Someone owns a certain thing in pretty much most cases in the English language. Uh, if you want to just bring up the next slide, it should show. Yeah, okay, Bob, that's what I use there. So a wallet of Bob or Bob's wallet. Uh, that sort of function of language is usually called the genitive. You don't necessarily need to remember that, but that is sort of what that does grammatically. Now, Greek is very similar, uh, except there's usually just one way to say that. So for lack of uh, diving too much into it, you basically put the equivalent of an O and a U at the end of a word, and that indicates possession. That is the genitive of Greek. Um, that's pretty much what they use to express that. But in Greek, that little OU, so to speak, can mean a lot more than just, you know, Brendan's phone, Brendan owns this. It can actually express a, a wider range of ideas than that. And so when we see this phrase here in Romans and also uh, in Romans 1, the righteousness of God, diakosune theu, that's the, the Greek for it, um, literally, again, it just means righteousness of God, but it can refer to a number of things, and there are three that I want to take a look at. And the first is righteousness as a character trait of God. So we could kind of say the same thing in English. So, um, you know, Toby's kindness, uh, that is expressing a character trait that he possesses. So is this what this passage is talking about right here in the first verse? The righteousness as a character trait of God? Well, back in the 1500s, a monk named Martin Luther, uh, upon reading uh, this same phrase in Romans 1, thought that that might be the case, that this is talking about God's righteousness. But this terrified him. And you may be thinking, why, why should that be scary, God's righteousness? Well, Luther understood that a, a part of God's righteousness is his justice and his judgment of sin that God sees evil and he judges it accordingly. So if I open up my Bible and it says that God is now manifesting his righteousness, uh, right after we've read all about the sinfulness of human beings, that is really not a good thing. Uh, that is a terrifying thing because that means that judgment is coming. God is manifesting his righteousness. Um, and I know that I'm a sinner, I know that I'm unrighteous, so judgment is coming. So that's, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is uh, righteousness as a character trait of God that he is then giving to other people in the sense of, uh, you know, using Toby as an example, you know, Toby's kindness, you could say, rubs off on his children, that there's a transfer of this character trait from one person to another. And that's how, you know, our Roman Catholic uh, brothers and sisters have understood it and to a large extent still do, that God is transferring his righteous character to people. And by virtue of that, you know, we become more righteous and, you know, if we hit a benchmark of righteousness, we're all good. So that's the sort of Catholic understanding. Um, but there's another way to understand that 
that you can gain from uh, looking at the passage. And that is righteousness not as a character trait of God, but something that he's gifting to people, and righteousness being a status. So righteousness, just that word, usually just refers to um, a standard and meeting that standard. So if you are driving you know, down the road and the speed limit is 55 and you drive 55 or below the whole time, I could say that by virtue of the standard of the speed limit, you are righteous. You have obeyed the speed limit. You haven't sped. You haven't done anything wrong there. You've met that standard. And in this case, that righteousness is a declaration to us that we have met a standard, that we are declared righteous as a gift from God. Now, if that seems a little odd, how am I getting that out of that passage? I think a helpful way to look at it is one instance in which English sort of does mirror this. And it's helpful because it often happens around the Christmas season. So let's say, you know, we're celebrating Christmas and uh, I point out a gift and I ask, you know, what is that? And you just say to me, oh, you know, that's Bob's gift. Okay, what do you mean by Bob's gift? Is it a gift for Bob? Or is it a gift from Bob to another person? You can kind of flesh that out by the context, by what gets said uh, later on, whether it's a gift for Bob or from Bob. But in a similar way uh, to that sort of English sort of uh, construction, that's what the Greek is doing. Is it saying, this is a gift from God. This is God's righteousness as a gift that he is giving, not as a character trait, but as a declaration of our righteousness. And the reason why we know this is Paul says essentially the same thing that I'm saying, only elsewhere in scripture in Philippians 3.9. He doesn't use this grammatical construction, the genitive. Uh, he uses other words, and this is what he says in Philippians 3.9. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, so righteousness as a standard and a declaration of meeting that standard, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So again, this isn't the righteousness of God as a character trait. It's something coming from him. And it's not that character trait infusing us in this instance, um, it, is a care, it is a declaration, a legal term being given to us from God as a gift. That is what the righteousness of God is. That is what Paul is saying is being manifested. And why that's so important is because that really is the ground of what's, or not necessarily the ground, but the, the effect of what salvation is. Salvation is first, this doesn't encompass every bit of salvation, but first, before anything else happens, God declares us to be legally righteous, that we are in the right, that we have met the standard. But what is so unique about this is, he says, we are being declared righteous apart from the law, we are being uh, told that we are meeting the standard apart from the standard, apart from actually meeting the standard. How can this be? How is it possible 
That seems like a contradiction. And so Paul goes on to say, he notes that this has uh, been testified by the law and the prophets, meaning uh, the Old Testament scriptures. But he goes on to say that this is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That this declaration of us being righteous, of meeting God's standard, doesn't come from us actually meeting the standard. It comes from trusting in Jesus Christ. It comes from placing faith in him. Because if we go back to the first part of Romans 3, we realize none of us have actually met the standard and none of us have the ability to meet the standard. You're incapable of being declared righteous meeting the standard as a sinful human being. You're just never going to get there. If the, if the report card comes, it's always going to be an F. There is nothing that you are going to be able to do because you are so shot through and tainted by sin. And so God in the gospel is declaring us righteous, is saying, you are right, you uh, are uh, good, you uh, have met the standard of the law. And this allows us to have a reconciled relationship with him because he's holy uh, and we are sinful. This allows a holy God to be with a sinful people. And while it doesn't come out here in this passage, uh, this is a theological, uh, theologically important thing to understand that we'll see elsewhere in Romans. But part of the mechanism by which God does that is Jesus Christ was the only person that satisfied all the conditions of the law, that actually did fulfill the law, that was declared righteous by doing everything the law prescribed and not doing everything the law forbid. And so God transfers that declaration of righteousness of Christ, that Christ has met all the standards. He is righteous and he transfers that to us. That is why we're able to be declared righteous, is that there's been a transfer. The term for it is imputation. Uh, you don't have to remember that necessarily, but that is what it's called, just so long as you get the idea that there's a transfer of that legal status from Christ to us. That is the first step of salvation. That is what's called justification. And as Paul goes on, so he declares that this is a universally valid offer to all who've sinned, because all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, everyone who places faith, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That justification word is meaning that we are declared righteous in Christ by his grace as a gift. And it says that this is through the redemption in Christ. So we've talked about now, this is the what of the gospel. This is what salvation is, is it's a legal declaration that we are in the right to a holy God so that we can have a relationship with him. This is, this is not the entirety of the gospel. Again, there are so many other beautiful facets, but to start off, this is the first part of the gospel. And now, as Paul has explained what that is, he's now going to explain, okay, how does the gospel work? Why is it that we're able to be declared righteous? What has been done in a supernatural way to allow this to take place? So Paul is now in the next 
uh, really just the first part of verse 25. He's going to explain the how of the gospel. How does this work? And so he says in the beginning of verse 25, uh, well, first the end of verse 24, uh, justified by grace's gift through the redemption in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation. How many of us have used that in a sentence in our daily life recently? <laughs> not a lot of us, including myself. Uh, not a very uh, common English word. And uh, really, propitiation is a word that's really reserved for uh, religious things. It's a, a religious word. Um, and it, it comes uh, in uh, this context from a sort of Greco-Roman religious practice. So what propitiation is, is uh, in you know, Greco-Roman times, and you can still see this in other religions today, um, you often have gods that are angry. Uh, they can be angry for all sorts of reasons, for a lot of the Greco-Roman gods, very petty reasons. And uh, there's a threat of uh, judgment, there's a threat of punishment or calamity. And so to sort of forestall this, people would offer up sacrifices, would do various deeds to sort of avert the wrath of the gods. That averting the wrath is propitiation. So, you know, let's say I anger Pastor Paul, I could buy him a little trinket as a way to propitiate his wrath at me. <laughs> Not that that would ever happen, he's very nice. But <laughs> that's sort of the idea that a, a sort of gift or a sacrifice is being made. And so maybe to make that a little clearer with an actual example, um, there should be a slide of a weird snake guy. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, this is a uh, sort of uh, sculpt, uh, sculpture or whatever of a uh, Greco-Roman god named Zeus uh, Melikios. Uh, not the Olympic Zeus throwing lightning, but a similarly named unrelated god. Uh, he was a snake god who was sort of in charge of agriculture. So this, he was worshipped in Athens around 300 BC, and again, he was over agriculture and also wealth. And he also had a pretty big temper. He was a very volatile uh, god. And so he would get angry a lot for all sorts of, of random reasons. And so typically during February and March, sort of uh, early spring, late winter, this was the time of his sort of festival. Um, and uh, the people, so just giving the context, that was one of the most dangerous times for the crops because if there's a sudden change in the weather, a frost comes, that could kill off you know, a lot of the early blooming crops. So this was interpreted as the wrath of this Zeus god. And so they wanted to avert his wrath. They knew he was angry, so they would offer sacrifices to him. In one instance, they sacrificed a bunch of pigs by just immolating them. Um, that was a way to propitiate the angriness of Zeus. And so, in doing so, they believed, you know, that now that we've satisfied him, you know, his mood swing is over, he'll, you know, take care of our crops, maybe he'll give us a little money too. So we've propitiated him, 
and for now he's all set. But because this Zeus is a somewhat capricious and petty god, uh, you can't just propitiate him once. He'd get angry again, so you'd have to propitiate him again. He'd be calm, then he'd get angry. You keep propitiating him. It's just this endless cycle that forms the worship of this particular god. So that is propitiation in a nutshell. Again, it's offering a sacrifice or a gift to appease an angry deity. Now, this is being applied to God, Yahweh, uh, the one true God in this passage. And so it's important to understand both where there's a similarity uh, with that sort of pagan concept, but also where it radically diverges, lest we think that the God we serve is a petty snake god like Zeus. So first thing to understand with that is that we are talking about a sacrifice. We're talking about the sacrifice of Christ's blood, which is just a reference to the crucifixion and death of Christ. And we do have to acknowledge that, it, as we've seen in Romans, God is angry. God is angry at man's sin. But the first difference to be aware of is that this is not the petty anger of a pagan god. This is the righteous and just anger of a holy god. For us as humans, when we see injustice, a common reaction is to become angry. Uh, if you know, I saw someone beating someone up and felt absolutely nothing, if I was just calm and serene at that, uh, you would say that there's a problem. Being angry in that instance is a, a good reaction, that you see an injustice occurring, you have a righteous anger that comes up, that there is a good response that takes the form of anger, though the difference between our anger and God's is that his is holy, just, and perfectly proportionate to the injustice before him. It doesn't get out of hand as ours often does. So God is angry, but he's angry for good reason. He is perfectly holy, and unfortunately, we are sinful people who continually uh, sin. And so he is justly angry at that. So that's the first difference. The second difference is, as we went through the example of uh, Zeus, it's the people who are offering up this propitiation. It's your average Athenian farmer who sees you know, a storm coming and wants to propitiate their god, they offer up a sacrifice to their god for their own sake. What we see here, however, is people are not offering up this sacrifice. No one is offering up Jesus as a human being. Uh, you know, Paul, the apostle, Peter, they are not offering Jesus as a propitiation to God. Not at all, in fact, Paul says, God is the one who put forward Jesus as a propitiation. God is the one offering up Jesus, not another human being. And so, in the last bit of this passage, I'll explain just the import of that idea. But we have to understand, this is not uh, sinful humans offering up a sacrifice to appease God. This is God doing it himself. And if we understand the Trinitarian implications of that, uh, this isn't God the Father browbeating his son into being, you know, sacrificed to him. Uh, God the Son is just as much God as God the Father, and he is willingly giving himself up. 
God is willingly offering his son and doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is a, a willing process done uh, by all members of the Trinity in the various facets uh, that they are doing it. So this is another huge difference that the ones with the problem, humans are not the ones offering the solution. God is offering the solution. He is propitiating his own wrath, his own anger. And finally, the major difference, and though it's not stated explicitly here, is stated elsewhere in scripture, is that this is a once and for all propitiation. Jesus didn't offer his life to appease God for 10 minutes, and then, you know, someone says a bad word, and all of a sudden, we got to sacrifice someone else. You know, this is, this is getting out of hand. No, this is a once and for all sacrifice. We see this in Hebrews 10.10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. There is no further propitiation to be made. There is no further sacrifice to be offered. Jesus Christ is a permanently effective sacrifice, averting the wrath of God for those who believe in him. <clears throat> this is the propitiation by Christ's blood that Paul is talking about. And this propitiation is what allows God to declare us righteous, to offer us salvation. His wrath is averted for all time for those who believe. So that's the mechanism, that's the how of the gospel, how this whole thing works. But maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Why does he need a sacrifice? Why can't God just forgive sin? You know, why does he have to go through this complex sort of scenario? He has to become incarnate, he has to die, be resurrected, all this uh, hullabaloo. Why does he have to go through this process? What's the logic of this seemingly strange event? And so this is what Paul is going to explain in the last uh, part of verse 25 and 26. So this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. So we'll take that part first. So here, uh, in contra, uh, not contradiction, in uh, distinction from verse 21 when it says God's righteousness here, we are now talking about God's character trait of righteousness that he is a just judge of uh, sin. This is the righteousness that we're talking about here. And it says that, uh, again, referring back to the first part of verse 25, we're talking about this propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, um, that this was done in order to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. So what's this talking about. So when it talks about God in his divine forbearance or patience passing over former sins, this is talking about basically all the sins that God had forgiven pre-Christ as we sort of see it in the temporal plane. So everywhere in the Old Testament where you see God's people sin and he forgives them, this is what this is talking about. It's saying that God passed over former sins. And for us, that's great. Forgiven sin is a great thing. Don't see any issue there. Everything seems good. But in a divine perspective, this does actually create a tension. 
because God is holy and just, his justice requires that some type of penalty has to be meted out for sin, that some type of consequence has to be present. Uh, God does not simply forgive in the sense of there's absolutely you know, no penalty whatsoever. Um, he does forgive in response to a penalty being meted out. And so when you see God forgive sin in the Old Testament, having that theological idea in the back of your mind, it seems a little odd that he is forgiving so freely. You could, as a, a cynic, look, for instance, at David and his uh, murder of Uriah and say, you know what, I don't know how righteous God is. You know, he says that he punishes sin, he says that he's just and he takes care of evil, but he's letting David get away with literal murder, all right? <laughs> there seems to be a disconnect between God's stated characteristic of righteousness and judgment of sin and his actions in forgiving sin without any type of penalty, without his wrath being averted in any way. And so this is the tension that exists. And so Paul is saying that this propitiatory sacrifice of Christ was done in order to demonstrate his righteousness. So this is being done in order to show that God truly is righteous, that that character trait of his, that he is a just judge of sin, is true. And so how does that work? What does that mean? So verse 26 uh, fleshes this out. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So speaking of the present uh, as Paul is alive and even today, uh, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So you see, again, there's this tension that exists that God is forgiving sin, but there doesn't seem to be a penalty met out. You know, a great way to think about it is, let's say I have my bank account, and I have $2 in my bank account, and I buy a chocolate bar for $3. Now there's a dollar deficit in my bank account, and, you know, I either have to pay it, because I'm the one who made the mistake and I bought something more, or the bank can forgive it. But in forgiving it, the bank is taking a penalty on itself. They have lost out on a dollar. Uh, you know, a dollar doesn't just magically appear from nowhere and just replenish the account. So the bank is satisfied, they haven't lost a dollar, I haven't lost a dollar. The math doesn't work in that instance. And it's a similar concept with God, again, that pre-Christ, there's a forgiveness of sin, but there's not a penalty met out. So God is just, and his wrath has to be appeased. It has to be propitiated, not because he is vindictive, but because, again, his character trait of righteousness requires that sin be punished in order to actually be demonstrated as righteousness. Another way to think of it is if I broke into your house, I smashed your window and just beat you up, and I go to court and I say, well, sorry about that. And the judge says to me, well, eh, you're fine. <laughs> and I don't have to pay for your broken window. I don't have to pay for your medical bills. I don't have to go to jail or do anything. You might look at that and say, wow, the justice system is a joke. 
You could just break into people's houses and beat them up. Like, nothing happens. We should all start doing that. Uh, <laughs> it calls into question the actual righteousness of the justice system. And again, it calls into question the righteousness of God. So what does God do? He has this ingenious plan that allows him to be just, that allows him to demonstrate his righteousness in that a penalty is being meted out, but it also allows him to satisfy another of his attributes, which is mercy. God does want to forgive. God does want to be gracious. He's not being strong-armed into doing this. He really does want to do it, but he needs to make sure for himself that he is entirely consistent with all of his attributes, with all of who he is. And so what does he do? Uh, God, as Trinity, God the Son willingly takes on that penalty of God's justice. He willingly takes on the penalty that you and I deserve so that God's justice can be satisfied. A penalty has been paid. And for those who place their faith in him, this now means that God can forgive in a logically consistent way. A penalty has been met, and so now God can be just in justifying. This is what Paul means by that God is able to be just. He's able to met out the penalty. He is able to punish sin, but also be justifier, also be the one who can declare, the righteous, uh, declare righteousness for his people by forgiving their sins. God is able to, in his great wisdom, satisfy both his justice and his mercy in the cross. And that is the beauty of the gospel. And so I just want to wrap that all, uh, what Paul is saying, in a nice, tidy gift, because that is what it is. That's what God's word presents it as. It is a gift. So we are sinful people. We are people who have failed God's law. We have done evil. And again, this is something we can all plainly see in our own lives. We know that we are not perfectly good. And so this presents a problem because God is perfectly good and justice has to be done. But we are the ones who created the problem. We are the problem. And so by all means, we should offer the solution. And if we were to offer the solution, it would result in our deaths, both temporally and eternally, for our sin. So we're the ones with the problem. We are the problem. But God decides, you know what? I want to have mercy on these people. And so I am going to offer up a way through Christ, through his propitiatory death, that people who place their faith in him can be forgiven and my justice can be seen as true and valid and be satisfied. And in the uh, righteousness of Christ being transferred to us, we are declared righteous by God we are allowed to be in a relationship with him and to spend eternity with him. And so again, I just want to highlight the fact, can you imagine that we are the ones with the problem? That we are the sinners, we are the ones who have spat in God's face, we are the ones who have trampled on his law, and yet he has developed, he has devised a plan for our salvation that doesn't require anything from us, that he has supplied the sacrifice, he has supplied the means, he has supplied the righteousness. We don't have to do anything except, except that. We simply say, Lord, 
you are right. We are sinful people. I am a sinful person. But you have done everything necessary to secure my salvation, everything necessary to bring me into relationship with you. And that's what I want to do. That's all God is asking of us, is to have faith in him. And so if the band could come up, God's word today implores you, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, to do so, that God has provided all the means necessary for an eternal, glorious, happy relationship with him. And so if you've never done that, I, I, uh, not I encouraging you, but again, God and his word encourages you to place your faith in that. And for those of us who've already done so, be encouraged. This is the God who you serve, not a petty, vindictive uh, snake Zeus, but a good, glorious, loving God who's done everything in his power to secure salvation for you. Amen.